G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. Previously, on Who Killed Leanne Holland. Oh, and he passed a polygraph. Your hero Stafford failed his polygraph. Two things can be true at once. Is a pedophile... And Stafford is a pedophile and child killer too. There would be investigators and prosecutors and barristers who would dream of finding one problem with a case, one problem that they could they could cast doubt on. What do you do when you're 550? Who, who, do, you, who do you turn to? I refer to our brief discussion regarding this matter. Stafford has been committed for trial and the evidence is entirely circumstantial. There are features in this case that give rise to some doubt that Stafford is the offender in this crime. Um, You know, the jury were given the misleading impression that there was blood all through the house. Uh, But in fact, the police investigation revealed that there was really only five spots of blood which were referable to Leanne or any of her siblings or father who were in the house. So... um, which is a very different story um, than the one that the jury eventually convicted Graham on. She did that transaction. There's there's absolutely, that is bulletproof. That puts her alive until at least 11.05. The the window to commit the murder is getting less and less and less. A 610 Media Production. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. Chapter 6. Smoke and Mirrors. Okay, welcome to Chapter 6 of Who Killed Leanne Holland. Hi, Graham. How you doing? I'm well, thanks, Jamie. And you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. And I just thought I'd clarify um, for you, the listener, that we're not in the same room um, due to the coronavirus and the pandemic and social distancing. You know, and Graham, you've had chemotherapy recently, so we're trying to maintain distance and uh, make sure everyone stays healthy. So we're not actually in the same room. That's why uh, we're recording remotely but it's all good. It's all good, mate. So last chapter, Graham, we discussed the just the tip of the iceberg of the House of Cards, the, the Crown or the prosecution's case against Graham Stafford. We have many, many more topics to get through, but last chapter we just basically touched the surface of it. That's right, Jamie. We did. We just we just scraped the surface of it and there's just so much more to talk about. But um, 
to summarise, we talked about the major investigation starting on day one. We talked about the time of death, how it had to have happened before 4.30pm on that Monday when the evidence suggests quite clearly that Leanne died on the Tuesday. We talked about the blood in the house or, in fact, the lack of it. Just, just on that, Jamie, the lack of blood in the house does not prove that Graham Stafford did not kill Leanne. No, absolutely not. But what it means is he didn't kill her in that house and he did not put the body in the boot of his car. But that opens up a whole Pandora's box. If he didn't kill her in the house and he didn't have her in the car, where did he kill her? When did he kill her? And what did he do with the body? But it was the Crown case that the murder happened in the house and the body was in the boot of the car, so that's the facts that we have to deal with. We we can't speculate on what he did or didn't do elsewhere. Um, We're dealing with the facts. And then we talked about the the bank teller evidence, and uh, Mm. boy, oh, boy, you know, we've had some feedback on that. And I said before and I'll say again, to me, that is the most compelling evidence in this whole sorry mess. Absolutely. And it's what I remember telling you back in Sydney when we first met and you told me that. I had so many questions and just like the feedback we're getting on Facebook and on social media, we're getting so many questions about this Herbert Holland and this money. Like what would what would Leanne do with $200? And, and it opens up so many different questions and avenues of investigations. And we will have to look at that further for sure. And to answer all those questions that uh, people have. Absolutely. One question you might be able to answer, Graham, straight off the bat is how far did Herbert Holland live from the Commonwealth Bank? About a kilometre from memory. I did go to his house just once many years ago. If it's accepted that Leanne did withdraw that money and took the bank book back to Herbert Holland's house, well, she had to have been alive until at least 11.30am, assuming she walked, of course. Uh, which the, then cuts down the window of opportunity even more. And I guess the, the next question is, why would she be withdrawing $200? And why would Herbert flat out say that it was him and that it was never Leanne? I've pondered that issue for years, uh, and I wish I knew the answer. Did you ever find out if Leanne often withdrew money from Herbert's account? No, I, I don't know the answer to that. So, Graeme, in this chapter, we will continue to identify the discrepancies in the police case that was against Graeme Stafford. This was only a circumstantial case. There were no witnesses and there were no admissions made by Graeme Stafford. There was only a limited window of opportunity. There was no motive by a young man with no criminal history, no history at all of any violence or antisocial behaviour whatsoever. Apparently, he just went berserk and committed not only an extremely violent murder, but inflicted injuries on the body, suggesting he suffered severe mental illness. And after 15 years as a model prisoner, he has lived amongst us in the community for almost 15 years, during which time there have been no criminal convictions or police investigations. The Crown would have you think that all the individual links join together and make a very strong chain of evidence against Graham Stafford. But as we will show you, the majority of links in this so-called chain just don't stand up to scrutiny, yet alone close scrutiny. And curiously, somehow, all these discrepancies were reviewed and dispatched as perhaps inaccurate or insignificant in the police review, and the original evidence stood strong. 
Well, we disagree, and we will show you. I would just like to say before we get into this, and I'd just like to clarify something about what we're doing here. This is about the unsolved murder of a 12-year-old girl, and it's a matter that deserves justice. Graeme Stafford's conviction for that murder was quashed. Therefore, no one has been held accountable for that murder, Jamie. The Queensland Police made it clear in 2014, after they were forced to release the findings of the police review, that Graeme Stafford was a killer and that he acted alone. Whilst they did not specifically say it, they inferred the matter was closed. The Director of Public Prosecutions advised they would not be retrying Graeme Stafford for the charge of murder. Recently, I contacted the Queensland Police asking the current Commissioner of Police, Katrina Carroll, to come on the podcast to discuss the matter, but it was refused. I also requested the whereabouts of the exhibits from the case. The Queensland Police declined to comment on that and the reply advised that it was an ongoing investigation, which just was intriguing. Does that mean that since 2014 new evidence has come to light or has the Homicide Squad rejected the findings of the police review? I saw clarification of that matter, and that too was refused, and the Queensland Police declined to comment. I personally believe the only way to resolve this matter is to have a coronial inquest into Leanne's death. And on that subject, it is obligatory in Queensland to hold an inquest into a violent death, yet no inquest has been held into Leanne's death. The Queensland Police oppose an inquest, but we do not know why. We'll be asking the Queensland Attorney General to discuss the matter in, with us if she agrees. And also, Graeme, uh, we started talking about some feedback that we have been getting and some anonymous people reaching out to us. A few weeks ago, you were contacted by, we don't know if it was a male or a female, uh, there was no identity, there was no name given, and they claimed to be one of the scientists on the review team. That's right. And obviously what they had to say, what, what they emailed us, is evident or obvious that they were on the police review team. The scientists went to considerable length to disguise themselves. Uh, I'm not sure why, but possibly in fear of retribution for speaking out. Uh, they even created an anonymous email address. And we've heavily edited their comments to protect their identity, not that we know it. The Queensland Police have a long history of pursuing whistleblowers, except it seems when it comes to the leaked secret police review report that no investigation was ever commenced in relation to that offence. If you have a look at the case of Police Sergeant Rick Florey, it's a perfect example of, of hounding a whistleblower. The Queensland Police pursued him for seven years before he was found not guilty in the district court. We don't know if this person, this scientist, is a male or a female. We had an actor read out some of the emails we received. Here they are. As I said, we are muzzled. I don't understand, given the time, effort and resources that were used at several separate universities, including my own, to re-examine the exhibits from the case. The science is sound, but something clearly stinks. Of course, confidentiality is ensured as part of a review process, but then to not release the results of the said investigations to the public? I am happy to discuss issues on broad terms. There is frustration on both sides. Obviously, Mr Stafford, who can't access the review to defend himself, and on the part of those who worked on the review who feel their efforts are all for naught. I don't understand the reasoning behind all this cloak and dagger fiasco. 
The review contains photographic evidence which I think is particularly compelling. But as well I watched murder uncovered and Mr Usher misrepresented the strength of certain evidence, particularly the blood spatter evidence on the shower curtain. Separate teams worked at different universities on the evidence depending on their expertise. I can only speak for myself, but an agreement was in place that no one would speak to the media, even the family members, about the case. The expectation was that the results from the lab review would form part of a report that would then lead to a coronial inquiry. Years went by and utter silence from the public, etc., until Michael Usher started fishing around. I was gobsmacked, and I know others were too, that the review, instead of being used as a foundation for a coronial inquest, was turned over to the media. To comment on what I know, Leanne's DNA could only be isolated from one of the drops of blood on the shower curtain. The police sent a fibre cement tile base to be analysed for blood. An extensive amount of blood was present, however, again, the sample was too degraded to determine whose it was. I would love to know how the media got hold of this review, while experts who worked on the review are being muzzled. And why hasn't this gone to an inquest? All I can say is something stinks. I have to tell you, Jamie, the scientist was willing to talk to me until I asked about Leo Freeney's evidence regarding the blood in the house. And at that point, the, the, the conversation stopped. I begged and pleaded that that was the last question I would ask them. I never received another uh, reply from it. I, I asked uh, what their opinion was and what they, what they found about Leo Freeney's evidence. To refresh your memory, Leo Freeney stated that uh, the murder never happened in the Holland House and the body was never in the, in the boot of um, Graham Stafford's car. And we've never properly explained who Leo Freeney was. When I was investigating this matter at the request of the Stafford family, um, I raised concerns with Graham Stafford's uh, legal team regarding the complete lack of blood in the house, the lack of blood on his clothing and belongings and the lack of blood in his car. They were very, very serious concerns of mine. I felt that a murder of this ilk would have way more blood than uh, than was evident. You know, head wounds produce huge amounts of blood. Leanne had been savagely beaten around the head with a, a weapon, possibly similar to a hammer, and yet virtually no blood was found anywhere. So I raised it with them, and the defence team contacted the then senior forensic officer of the Queensland government, Leo Freeney. Leo had attended over 4,000 crime scenes and had given evidence for the Crown at over 1,000 times. He was, deemed, he was deemed an expert witness. His resume is just extensive and impressive. The media had uh, described Leo Freeney as, uh, as Queensland's own Quincy. And for those familiar with uh, Emmy Quincy or Medical Examiner Quincy, he was a fictional uh, character in a television series in the 70s and 80s involved in in in-depth forensic investigations. Gentlemen, we're about to enter the fascinating sphere of police work, the world of forensic medicine. At the appeal court, 
This is what one of the judges said about Leo Freeney's evidence. Mr Freeney's evidence stands uncontradicted. And as I said, I uh, asked the scientist involved in the review about Freeney's evidence and at that point all communication stopped. The trial went cold. It well and truly did. So Leo Freeney is a, a seasoned veteran. He's been there and done that. He knows what he's doing with crime scenes and he doesn't believe the murder was committed in that bathroom. Well, Jamie, he actually went further. He gave evidence for the defence at the 2009 appeal hearing of Graham Stafford. Here's a Queensland government employee, senior forensic officer, who's given evidence for the police over a thousand times and on one occasion gives evidence for the defence. Reminds me of the story about the... um, the DPP prosecutor who refused to prosecute the case. First you have the DPP prosecutor who says the guy's not not guilty and I don't want to prosecute it. Then you have their senior forensic officer saying the murder didn't happen in that house and the body was never in the boot of that car. The following snippet is from Australian Story. It features Associate Professor David Field, a criminal lawyer, and Leo Freeney, the forensic scientist. What the police said was, in effect, we believe that Graham Stafford hammered this girl to death in the bathroom. We didn't find a lot of blood, therefore he must have cleaned it up. What Leo Freeney said was, no, there was no sign of a lot of a cover-up. Even if you look at the cracks in the tiles, there's no evidence suggesting there was a big clean-up. Therefore, there never was sufficient blood to account for a death like this. Therefore, the, the death did not occur in the bathroom. There was insufficient blood even to account for a a shaving cut, never mind a a messy death with a hammer. Even if uh, Stafford had time to clean up, I've never seen, and I've been to hundreds of scenes and done thousands of court cases and 4,000 or so uh, cases all up, I've never seen anyone successfully clean blood up. Secondly, there wasn't sufficient blood in the car boot to account uh, for a body having been put in there. And that links in with further forensic evidence to say that um, had the body been left in the car uh, for that length of time, there would have been a strong odour of decomposing flesh, which there wasn't. I've had altogether about 40 years' experience in criminal law. Well, in my experience, the the, the petition put to the appeal court was a very strong one. It it proved um, that, that... The fundamental assertion being made by the prosecution in the original trial was seriously flawed. Putting it in simple terms, if you like, the jury had been misled. Graham, the Commonwealth Bank evidence, obviously very, very compelling. And also the confirmed sightings on that Monday, the 23rd of September, 1991. Uh, She was sighted at the Commonwealth Bank branch and we discussed the bank teller um, who saw Leanne, and she was at the bank at 11.05am. Another inconvenient sighting for police was a family standing outside the shops in Queen Street that morning. They thought the time was around 12 midday. The son who was present went to school with Leanne Holland, so he knew her pretty well. They observed a young girl who came out towards them from the direction of the Commonwealth Bank, and they believed it was Leanne Holland. And she was observed wearing clothing similar to what she was found in. And just to clarify, in the last uh, chapter, I actually said the confirmed, last confirmed sighting of Leanne was 10.30am, but in fact, 
the police said the last confirmed sighting was 10.15am. And uh, by inference, therefore, Graham Stafford then had a number of hours in which to kill her, dispose of the body, clean up, and so on and so on. And did that friend who went to school with Leanne Holland, did they ever give evidence or give a statement? No. No, they didn't. No, and did you manage to track them down when you were investigating? I managed to track down the mother. I was never able to track down the son. Well, if he's listening, get in touch. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, talking about uh, confirmed sightings uh, on that Monday, the police say the last confirmed sighting of Leanne was 10.15am. We've heard about the bank teller evidence where she was allegedly seen at 11.05am. You've got this family who are outside the bank They think it was around 12, but does that mean it's 11.15 or 11.20? Forget the many, many disputed sightings. Let's let's talk about the confirmed sightings on that day. Righto. Because Graham Stafford's movements on that day were epic. He was was just so busy. I seriously don't know when he had time to, to murder anyone. So between 9 and 11... A friend of Graham Stafford's calls him up and invites him over. In fact, he was the friend that Graham Stafford and uh, Melissa Holland went away to the Gold Coast with for the weekend. So between 9 and 11, you got a phone call from uh, Bob, your friend Bob. Yeah, basically, you know, he, um, he just wanted to, because um, we were both on the roster day off, and um, he wanted to uh, know if I wanted to go over for a few more drinks and, you know, <laughs> Without sort of sounding like bagging him, sort of thing, he he liked to drink more than me, sort of thing, and um, it would have ended up being a session, you know. And we already had like a weekend away where we were sort of having a few drinks, you know. Um, and I just figured I, I wanted to get stuff done, and I knew if I went over to um, the other side of the uh, the river, sort of thing. Then, because um, it's a bit of a drive to, uh, I'd, I'd have to catch the ferry over to uh, Pinjara Hills, and um, you know, I'd end up there, and we'd probably get either if we didn't um, just sit around drinking at his place, we'd end up down the Kenmore Tavern. So then, between ten and eleven, Graham Stafford calls uh, Melissa Holland at work, and uh, Melissa notes nothing unusual in his uh, demeanour on the phone. Around 11am, Terry Holland calls the home, Graham Stafford answers, and he too uh, doesn't note anything unusual in his telephone manner. Around 11am, Graham Stafford was seen by the neighbour whose house is at the back of the Holland house, and uh, Graham Stafford was observed working on his car beside the house. Don't get this confused with the other sighting, um, the Vietnamese family who lived right next door to the Holland house, they too saw him working on the car that morning. However, there's some dispute there about whether the, the police said they interviewed them and the, and the Vietnamese said they weren't home, they were at a funeral. But I interviewed them, I took a Vietnamese interpreter and uh, they told us that they saw Graham Stafford working on his car and they saw Leanne Holland at the front of the house as well. Right, okay. So then between 12.30 and 1.15pm, uh, he was at Arthur Power's house where he used to live with Melissa and uh, Arthur Power said there was nothing unusual in his behaviour and his daughter also saw him there and she too didn't uh, note anything unusual. 
At 2 p.m., Graham Stafford was sighted at the Red Bank Plains Shopping Centre at a at an electrical shop, and uh, nothing unusual. Uh, at 2:18 p.m., he purchased dog food at Franklin's. I say it's 2:18 because they police later found a, a receipt in his car, timestamped at 2:18 p.m. And at 3 p.m., he was at the car wash, and again they found a uh, receipt in his car for that car wash. And at 3.30pm, Melissa Holland calls the Holland house and Graham Stafford answers, and again, there was nothing unusual in his behaviour. Uh, for those who are interested, if you go to the to the website, whokilledleanholland.com, there's a full list of confirmed sightings and disputed sightings on the timeline there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Incidentally, the Queensland Police claim that uh, Graham Stafford only needed 45 minutes to kill her, clean up the site, inflict the injuries on her that, that were inflicted, clean up himself, clean up the house, dispose of the body. Even their pathologist said that the injuries to Leanne were inflicted over a period of time. People I've spoken to have suggested that, you know, two hours is more realistic time frame to do all the stuff that needed to be done. So it begs the question, when did he kill her exactly, Jamie? What, at what period of time? You know, was it in the morning? Was it in the afternoon? How good was he to uh, just act normal when people spoke to him? So relaxed, nothing unusual, and no blood anywhere, mate, even on his clothes. But they're not the only sightings on that day. There are sightings, particularly three sightings, two of them have been disputed by the Crown, that are of particular fascination, Jamie. The first was at 3pm on the Monday afternoon. Um, the Cecil Hotel, which is straight across the road from the Holland House, right? Yeah. There was an employee there who was a family friend of the Hollands, had known them for years. He had known Leanne since she was a baby. Right. And he says he saw her walking past the hotel at 3 p.m. Okay. I spoke to him some years later, and he was still adamant that that sighting was correct. He said that uh, at the time of the trial, he was under huge pressure from the family and from Holland family not to give evidence. But he did, and he just felt it was the right thing to do. Uh, Leanne's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend at the time, who was a 14-year-old boy, and he gave evidence that he saw Leanne outside the Cecil Hotel at about 8.30pm on that Monday. However, he agreed with the Crown that it may have been the Sunday night. Yeah, okay. And the, it was just left at that. But when I made inquiries later, the Cecil Hotel wasn't open at 8.30pm on a Sunday night. Yeah. So, you know, just left me frustrated. This, this third sighting, Jamie, is of particular interest because it didn't suit the Crown case, and uh, for a number of years it was buried. A female bar attendant 
at a, another Goodner hotel that Terry Holland used to be a regular drinker at uh, gave evidence that on the Tuesday morning she went to the Goodner shops near where the, uh, the Commonwealth Bank was. She got out of a car. There was a car parked beside her. She got out of the car and there was a young girl in the passenger seat and she thought, oh, that's Leanne Holland. And she knew Leanne because of Terry being uh, a regular drinker at her pub and on occasions Leanne was there either with him or came to the hotel looking for him. Right. And she described it as an, an old black and white bomb car. Uh, this is a media comment that featured on Australian Story, a TV show. Confident. There was additional evidence that the, the girl, Leanne Holland, had been seen after the time when the police maintained she'd been murdered. But today, barmaid Christine Lawrence, who was never interviewed by police, told the appeal court she saw Leanne alive the day after she was said to have been murdered. The girl was sitting in a car parked next to hers at a shopping centre. So she went into the shops, she came out of the shops, and the girl was still in the car. So she had another look at her and she was, you know, firmly of the opinion it was Leanne Holland. So then on the Thursday morning, she saw a newspaper photograph of Leanne and recognised her as the girl that she'd seen in the car on the Tuesday morning. So she telephoned a friend, told him about the sighting. He telephoned police, but she was never interviewed. Okay. So then on the Friday night, she's working at the hotel and a number of police were drinking there. And one of them said that they were arresting the killer the next day. They were just waiting on the results of some further forensic tests. So obviously they'd made up their mind they were going to arrest him regardless of whether the forensic tests were good or bad, I guess. But anyway, she told him about the sighting of Leanne on the Tuesday, but he replied that it was not possible as Leanne died on the Monday. And the bar, bar attendant's reply was, well, she must have a double that evidence was buried until she contacted me uh, December 1992, January 1993. Seriously, if any of these sightings are accurate and credible and true, could Graham Stafford even be considered a suspect? Well, it definitely begs the question. It certainly does. But, but there's more, mate. We're, we're, just, we're literally just scratching the surface of the inconsistencies and the discrepancies with the Crown case. Let's talk about the hair dye. This is just, this is just unbelievable. A central feature of the Crown case surrounded the colour of Leanne Holland's hair both before and after death. We've commented on it in previous um, chapters where um, she, when she went missing, she had uh, blonde hair. When the body was found, she had auburn or red hair. It was the Crown case that he had, Graham Stafford had helped her dye her hair in the bathroom and, and this had somehow gotten out of hand and she ended up dead. Here's criminal barrister Joe Crowley again. So what happened was um, the police theory of the case is exactly as you described it. She was dyeing her hair in the bathroom and Graham Stafford was helping her and then in a sort of psychosexual rage, he then kills her. That comes from a phone call that Leanne had made earlier in the day uh, or on Monday, the 23rd of September, asking her father if she could dye her hair. Um, that's the only evidence of, of dye. The police came up with a theory. They then searched the house from you know top to bottom looking for some evidence of hair dye and they found none. So they had rejected or, or walked away from the theory that 
there was sort of some kind of hair dye going on by the time of the trial. So it's not even a feature of the case at the time of trial. It's only mentioned to the jury because the defence counsel, unwisely, in my opinion, cross-examines about some aspects of it. But it, the, the police aren't even alleging that the hair dyeing incident even ever occurred. What then happens is that in the police reinvestigation report that happens after 2012, the uh, Queensland police revisit these early theories of the case and um, they get some experts involved. Uh, so the only other piece of evidence that had helped the um, prosecution or made the prosecution think hair dyeing was involved is when the body um, of Leanne is found, the hair colour is different from how she had been described. Uh, and she seems to have um, uh, sort of a, a reddish hair. The initial investigators, I think, when they see the body, they make a note of this. But later on, the forensic pathologist takes a, a sample of the hair and washes it in water and um, the colour washes out and the forensic pathologist says it's not hair dye, it's just blood. So, you know, that doesn't help support the prosecution case. So they, they, they abandon this hair dye theory by the time of trial. Cut to 2012, the Queensland police are rehashing a lot of old theories and so they send off the um, hair to some expert and um, have that expert do some tests. And that expert comes back and says the hair's peroxided. Now, there's a number of issues with that. Um, you know, firstly, the whole hair dye theory starts because they think the hair looks red, not because they think it looks blonde. But anyway, the scientist... Um, who's testing the hair says oh, it looks like it's been peroxided and does some tests which says that it either been peroxided but couldn't um, identify a time period in which that peroxiding occurred. So couldn't actually identify that it had been peroxided that particular day. And it, obviously, if Leanne had peroxided her hair some days earlier, that's completely irrelevant. So they have to be able to say she's peroxiding her hair that day. Um, but the other problem with it is the Investigators at the time, you know, tore the house apart. They went through the garbage, the two different garbage bins, piece by piece, found no evidence, no peroxide, nothing that indicated um, any kind of um, hair dye scenario. So, you know, the reinvestigation report was really sort of, you know, trying to breathe life into a, a long dead theory as far as I'm concerned. The the theory of Graeme Stafford helping to... Uh to dye her hair in the bathroom, it, it just goes down the drain. Yeah. So to speak. And and as, you know, speaking of drains, the police police took water samples from all the S bands in the house and there was no blood found in any of the samples. So you have a brutal, sadistic, vicious bashing of a girl in a house and there's not one bit of blood in any of the S bands. How does that happen? Yeah, and also, if you remember, Joe Crowley, the criminal barrister, said that initially they thought there was blood in the mop bucket, but later it was determined in the laboratory that there was no blood in the mop bucket. That was just an old bucket of water, a dirty old bucket of water with a mop sitting in it. Yeah, but th there's more to it, Jamie, when you think about it. So the police find a full bucket of dirty water on the back step with a mop in it. And their tests show, their, their field tests show, that there's blood in it. And that's what the jury hear. There's blood in, there's blood in, that, in that bucket and mop. 
But later tests show that there's no blood in it, but they didn't hear that. And the jury also heard that the police, the, the forensic opinion was the house had been mopped. You've got Stafford mopping the house with the mop and bucket, and then that's how the blood gets into the, into the water. But if you think about it, how clever is he? He gets rid of all the blood out of the bucket and the water and the mop and then he fills up the bucket with water and he makes it dirty again so that you can't tell that it's, it's been used. It's, it's just ridiculous. But there was no blood found in it anyway, so... There was no blood there. So this brings us to the maggot, the, one of the stars in the case. I've talked in the past about big ticket items and this is one of the biggest ticket items. This finding had significant impact. When you look at it, when you break it down, mate, it, it just doesn't fit the bill. If you look at the evidence, the forensic officer says that he sighted the maggot in the boot on the Wednesday, but he decided to leave it in situ until he was in a controlled scientific environment to recover it. So, yeah, that's fair enough. I, I can accept that. However, he took possession of other things out of the boot on that day. So if you take possession of other things and record them, why wouldn't you take possession of the maggot? And let's face it, if I saw a maggot in a boot, there's no way I'd leave it there because in 24 hours or whenever you're going to go back, there's no, there's no guarantee you're going to find it again. That's, that'd, be the, that'd be the big thing. Where would it go to? Where, where would it be in 24 hours' time? There'd be no way that I would be leaving it there. The problem is with that, he made no written record of sighting the maggot on the Wednesday. He didn't make a note of it anywhere. Uh, when he was questioned later, he said he took it into his memory. There was a photographer, police photographer there. There was a videographer there. No video was taken. No photographs were taken of the maggot. There was plenty of video of the boot, plenty of photographs of the boot, but none of the maggot. 24 hours later, he's in the controlled scientific environment. He finds the maggot alive again, and he places it in a, in a specimen bottle. The, the bottle is numbered three. Again, he does not make a written record of seizing the maggot. Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere is there a written record of him taking possession of that maggot. And this is crucial evidence. It's just unbelievable that he would not make a record of it. So that's, that's at midday. He says that he started the uh, in examination of the vehicle at 11 a.m., and around 12 p.m., he found the maggot and he took possession of it. The problem with that is that when I was going through receipts and documents, at 11.30, the same forensic officer was about three kilometres down the road at the forensic laboratory depositing um, exhibits and someone signed for them. So he started at 11 a.m., then he scooted away down to the uh, laboratory and then he scooted back and then he's uh, found the maggot. So then at 4 p.m., after the body's found, he goes out to the, to the uh, dump site and the entomologist gives him maggots from the body and he places them in two specimen jars and they're sealed and they're numbered one and two. And so 
So I'm looking at it and I go, okay, so the bottle that's taken, that's sealed it and taken possession of at 12 midday, it's numbered three, and the bottles that at 4 p.m. are numbered one and two. Okay, you know, that might work. And on that Thursday, um, the arresting officers conducted a videotaped interview with uh, Graham Stafford, and matters were put to him about what was found in the boot, including blood and other material, and, and asked, asking him to explain how it's got there, but no mention of the maggot. The first mention of the maggot is on the Saturday when he's again being interviewed and they inform him that a maggot's found in the boot and one of the detectives says, well, as a matter of fact, I was there and I saw it. It was in the boot on the Wednesday. And they asked him to explain how a maggot got into the boot of his car and he said, well, I don't know. I don't know how it went. Jamie, they offered him the perfect out. I've seen it offered before and I've seen it accepted, but he didn't take it. They said, could you have gone to the dump recently with rubbish? Would, would that be maybe an opportunity, you know, how the maggot got there? And I've a perfect opportunity to say, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I, I took some food rubbish to the dump and it must have got fly blown and there was maggots in there. But no, he said, no, no, I haven't been to the dump. I don't know how the maggot got there. But it gets worse. Three scientists with entomological experience have since stated and given statements, sworn statements, that it is scientifically impossible for the maggot to be still alive in the boot after the time frame stated and in those conditions. And these are scientists who are peers of that forensic officer. They were all in the same scientific group. Must have been some interesting conversations in that group. He's saying this is what happened. Three scientists saying scientifically impossible for that to happen, mate. Here's criminal barrister Joe Crowley again. Because the police had to connect um, a body that's found, you know, many kilometres away from the what they say is the murder scene um, with Graham Stafford. And the way they do that is by saying that he put it in the boot of his car and drove the body out there. Um, now, with the very, very small amount of blood that they find, they need uh, something else, I think, to to bolster that case. And so they have the um, story of the maggot in the boot. Um, my, my gut feeling is, is that uh, it was an afterthought. It, it didn't, it never existed in the boot. It was something that um, was a story that was concocted to support um, uh, a case that was pretty weak. So that's my view. I mean, the, the, they produced a witness now, you know, 25 years later, who they say was a work experience student who was there at the time, um, who also saw the maggot. Um, I don't think they gave any reason for that um, student to not having given a statement earlier because the maggot uh, in the boot has been a source of contention for a long time. Um, so the, they, Queensland Police, Further, trying to further support the, this idea that the maggot was in the boot. But the even on their own descriptions of the maggot, the um, entomologist, scientist who looked at it said, they're wrong. Can't, it can't, if, if it's there, it's not from the body of Leanne Holland. And Joe, 
What about the um, the lie detector test? Because you know a lot of people have have seen you know the documentary where Graham Stafford was on and he was asked to do a polygraph and and he said no and then he went and did another one and the result was inconclusive. Look, if people want to blame, you know, Graham Stafford for not taking it on Channel 7, they can blame me for that. He called me very sensibly, I think, and asked for legal advice, and I said, uh, don't be crazy, don't do it. Um, polygraphs, uh, lie detectors, they're not admissible in Queensland courts or any Australian courts, and the reason that they're not admissible is because they're unreliable. Um, you know, if, if it was that you could have a machine that could tell whether you're lying or not, accurately, then that would be used in every court in the country every day of the week. But the reason that they're not is because that they, they're not reliable. People can beat them. Um, that's well known. So uh, my advice was there's no upside in taking the test. Um, and as a lawyer, just wouldn't bother. I, I wasn't particularly in favour of him taking the, uh, the test um, with somebody else, but if he was going to do it, uh, you know, from a lawyer's point of view, he was going to do it at all. I think better to do it in a situation where you're not under pressure, you are, you know, hopefully calmer, um, and you're dealing with a, um, you know, the people running the lie detector test don't necessarily have any um, any skin in the game, as it were. They're just doing their job. So we didn't know who the people were who were taking the test, who were going to administer the test. The Channel 7 had organised and, you know, it was a highly stressful situation for Graham. He turned up at the, um, you know, the Channel 7 studios um, and then suddenly on camera is, uh, you know, accused of being the murderer and all of this information he's never heard before from the, you know, reinvestigation reports thrown in his face. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, from a lawyer's point of view, there was just no way I was ever going to tell him to take that test and, you know, that's how it, uh, how it panned out. That's it for Chapter 6. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next fortnight for Chapter 7, Green is the New Black. We continue to dissect the discrepancies in the Crown case and we discuss new evidence that has only been identified in the last few weeks. It is yet another problem with the Crown evidence. 29 years after the case, new evidence, or in this case, another discrepancy has come to light. Do they ever end? Just another case of nothing is as it seems. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. It was recorded, edited and theme song by Jamie Pulse. It was mixed and mastered by Alex Rottier at Paperbark Studios. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to my auntie Vivi over in Texas who provided some background music. Also to Barbar Beats who contacted me and provided some music for this podcast, so thank you very much. You can follow him on social media and SoundCloud. I'll leave the link in the show notes. And also thank you to my sister-in-law, Courtney, who drew the chapter art for this chapter. Thank you very much, Courtney. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanneholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, Share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.